back to Caskets, a podcast for whiskey about whiskey. I'm Luke, that's Jordan. We're going to be talking about bourbon today, I believe. So mixing it up. What I know about bourbon? Absolutely nothing except it's referenced on things. Yeah, we're talking about bourbon. I mean, we're going to continue the um, a little bit more into the, the kind of history of American whiskey as well in general. Progress up through um, towards how whiskey came to be what it is today, but... Yeah, we'll be we'll be focusing on bourbon a little bit more. Last time we were talking about things like rye whiskey and the different categories that you get. Do you remember any out of interest? Yep, there was definitely, depending on the thing, depends on the percentages. Corn whiskey has to be a good portion of corn. Rye whiskey has to have rye in it. You know, all those things. Just one day I hope you actually learn something. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, when spelling whiskey, the E has to be in parentheses. No, it doesn't. I just put the E in parentheses so I can keep track of all the types of whiskey. Can you not let me have this one thing? No. If it was right. <laughs> Things I know about whiskey. Now, we all know I'm going to say it. There's one called Tam Dewey. Begging you to learn that it's not called Tam Dewey, it's Tam <laughs> I know it's not, but at this point I feel like the inconsistency would just be weird. Okay, so. Um, yeah, just a quick recap then. Bourbon. Must be made uh, with a mash bill containing at least 51% corn. That's exactly what I said. Uh, matured in brand new American oak casks. Um, the uh, Just briefly running over some others as well. Uh, if the whiskey is labelled straight on it, it uh, has to be at least two years old. I literally covered all this seconds ago when you asked me why I know and I said everything perfectly. Yeah, if you've edited it out, it's your fault. <laughs> uh, bottle and bond as well refers to the whiskey being at least four years old, has to be matured uh, again in these casks, these brand new casks. Um, more importantly, though, also has to be one distillation from one distillery under the watch of one distiller, bottled at at least 50% ABV, and you can't add anything but water to the spirit uh, under the to bring watchful it to this ABV. Eye of, under the watchful eye of the same distiller. Yes, sure. Just one eye, though. Yeah, he has an eye patch over the other. Well, it's so you can adjust to the dark quickly. Yeah, it's to keep his night vision ready for when the barrels are maturing at night. E- exactly, because yeah. if you, it's for when you open a cask and need to peer in to see if there's any cask goblins in there. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, obviously. Basically, if you want to know more, listen to the previous episode where we covered this in depth. And by we, we I mean you. Don't think we've ever covered cask goblins before. Oh, no, I meant the actual facts, not my Cast Goblin <laughs> rich history that will be released in the Cast Goblin book coming out next year. It's not. Please don't expect that. I don't know why you would, but... Can you like, where's the Cast Goblin <laughs> All book? All of a sudden you get terrible social anxiety. I have to write a whole book about <laughs> Cast Goblins. Why did I give myself this task? <laughs> yeah, just like, oh, no, I made one joke. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you can actually sell American whiskey younger than two years. Uh, it's just that these kind of markers prevent a, a certain level of quality that's come to be expected as well. I'm not saying if it doesn't have these, it's bad whiskey. It's just standards that are put in place to protect the industry. Gotta have that quality. So. <laughs> so. 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 Uh, as we covered last time, distilling started early on in the settlements uh, on the East Coast, where where it begun. Um, Which side's the East Coast? I know, uh, obviously, the East. The but East of America. I know So settlements that. like, well, some of the early ones would have been towards, like, probably... You know, you've got, like, New York, Boston area, Uh, Pennsylvania, where it's, you know, kind of level with where they'd have been coming across, roughly. But Laura decide. I don't know where the first settlement was in America, actually. I didn't ask where the first settlement was. I asked which side of America it was. 
I'm just gonna get some pens and papers and just draw my cast goblin for the rest of the episode, I think. Um, so, one of the important things to note is, um, although there were many expeditions, Daniel Boone's is, is the one kind of credited with uh, the discovery of the lens that would kind of become known as Kentucky, and more importantly, discovering a type of corn we call maize. Now, this grain would become very important, not just in distilling, but agriculture in general. Was he a boon to whiskey? No. He was a boon to um, mapping out the frontier. But if he discovered... But his surname was actually Boone. That's not like... Yeah, that's what, that was a whole joke. Like, he was a boon. How did he discover whiskey? I don't get when people are like, I discovered it. It's like, no, it, it existed. You didn't discover it. Yeah, but he, he led uh, an expedition through a certain pass and that found them a route to this part of America, basically. Uh... Which then led to colonisation in that area. So... So... Skipping forward a little bit, uh, Thomas Jefferson offered 60 acres of land to settlers to build structures and raise this native corn as a way to promote agriculture and growth. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, This is back when Kentucky kind of fell under the Virginia kind of territories. Um, Now, this practice became known as corn patching cabin rights. In other words, you know... That is such a good sentence. Yeah, so it was to try and promote farming and agricultural... Uh, kind of growth and things uh, kind of makes sense when you think about it if, you, if you're if you going to start bringing in people you need that kind of industry set up yeah they, people need to eat and I mean the one thing about you can say, definitely say about areas like Kentucky is this sheer expanse of land as well big huge areas so you can really get some good farming going on yeah I definitely can picture Kentucky in my head when you say it um, I mean the, the downside is I mean 60 acres is uh, it's a lot of corn if you can imagine like 60 acres Whoa. is big so uh, settlers started to basically distill quantities of the grain to stop it spoiling, as well as making it easier to transport. What came first, the corn or the corn circles? Where were aliens landing before we had cornfields? The corn has to come first. Think about it. You couldn't get a circle in ground. It wouldn't just be dirt circles. You couldn't get a circle in no, the ground. Circles can't circles. exist on There's the always ground. crop circles. Exactly. And it's always in a cornfield. So crop. So corn has to have come first. Like... Maybe aliens can't land without corn. Maybe that's like their landing strip. I don't oh know. Oh my gosh. If we get rid of corn, no more aliens. <laughs> Independence Day would have been so much quicker. Burn all the corn. But then how we survive? Everyone loves corn. True. I love corn. Corn flakes. <gasps> Popcorn. Popcorn. Sweet corn. I love sweet corn. Imagine going to the cinema and be like, sorry, you can't have any popcorn, otherwise aliens will invade the cinema. Cornstarch. Cornstarch, yeah. What do you use cornstarch for? Starching things with a corny fragrance. It thickens things. It thickens things, which is what I said. Um, yeah, so basically these these areas of land are offered up and settlers, they, they obviously started growing this corn. And like I was saying, to, grain effectively does its, its spoils. And to kind of keep on top of this, they were distilling in like small farm setups they were distilling some of this corn so that they could stop it spoiling it made it easier to transport and they could use it for trade and barter and things like that I'll give you one piece of corn for all your lions I don't think there's any lions native to America mountain lions but are they lion lions are mountain lions lions lion lions I mean you're on about like let's face it you're on about like the, the African plains kind of lions aren't you let's face it really you're talking about the big pride pride of lions I know you are because I know your reference <laughs> <laughs> They're just so fluffy. <laughs> this kind of segues nicely into the rise of the maturation as a, as a process. In the early days, distilling, and it's not just in America, this happened in Scotland and Ireland as well. The, uh, when you distilled the spirit, it was basically sold without maturation. This was 
a concept that just simply wasn't developed to that stage. It, you happened to transport it in casks, and it was more for it's easier to transport in casks as opposed to the actual effect wood had on the on the spirit. They didn't even know about that. However, it's believed that um, particularly if the weather was bad one season, or if there was just some kind of situation where you couldn't get the casks to market. Um, the obviously the spirit would spend longer in these casks and inadvertently it was maturing the spirit and leading to a, a slightly more rounded feel now it's believed that this when the spirit was sold people would kind of recognize this difference in quality and they would try and say hey you know we want more of that particular one that was that tasted nice it wasn't it wasn't like it was just melting our mouths or whatever do you think they were like, oh, what did we do differently? We got to drive around that one road and that made it yeah. taste really good. And they're just changing all the like, variables. Oh, the car, the, the wheel on the cart, it had this really weird kind of like yeah. tilt to it. Oh, we need to have a bad wheel on the cart. Wasn't a Braxis driving the cart that day? <laughs> Get a Braxis here now. No, he died of tuberculosis. He was only seven. <laughs> Times were tough back then, man. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, this idea of cast maturation kind of happened from the transport, and so it's it's something that it is basically what I'm trying to say is things progressed, but not necessarily by design. Happy accidents. Everyone <laughs> needs a friend. Now, I mean, over the years, there were different things that happened. There were different techniques, and um, different technology became available. One of the things I do want to uh, mention, because I don't think we mentioned it last time is you often see on bottles uh, you'll see the label is uh, noting sour mash you ever heard of sour mash before oh like sour mash kids no <laughs> <laughs> no um you'll you'll see with american whiskey sometimes it's said like sour mash bourbon or sour mash tennessee whiskey now the reason for sour mash actually is because lemons. in america sorry lemons no just bringing someone drinking whiskey and doing that. No. It's so sour. I mean, it's just sour. That's why it gets sour mash. But I don't like sour things. You also don't like whiskey, though. No, but I, I can't... I don't, I've never liked the Haribo sours, as we have previously discussed. True. Because I hated every time you made us get them as a child. I didn't get them very often, though, did I? No, because, you because always there is a difference between someone absolutely disgusted by something sour and someone just delighting in plain sweets. Because plain sweets taste are good. boring. Sour sweets are pure hell. They're not. Whereas if you like sour sweets, you can compromise with plain sweets. If you don't like sour sweets, it's like, oh, guess I'll die. Sour stuff just isn't nice. I can't... Mm. I can't think of a single sour thing that I would like to eat. I don't like sauerkraut. lemons. Ooh. Well, sauerkraut isn't sour. Just saying. It took me like it, less than two seconds to come up with something. It's fermented. Just saying. It's, it's not sour though. So sour mash came about because due to the humidity levels in the US compared to Scotland and Ireland, um, natural bacteria can grow it in the fermenting wash before distillation and it spoils and ruins the batch. Now, to avoid this, they discovered that if you add some of the grain used in the previous fermentation, which they call the back set, you can actually kill off the bacteria due to the acidity of this grain that's already Whoa. been used. This is really interesting. Sarcasm? No. Wait. I can't say no when someone asks me if it's sarcastic because it still sounds like I'm like, genuinely, fermentation is interesting. Well, you ferment the beer and then you distill it. That's the process of whiskey. I've told you that like 
Every single episode so far. I don't think so. I think I would remember. Um, and so to avoid this bacteria spoiling the batch, they would use this, this like I say, this back set. Um, and the problem is the grains had already had all the uh, the sugars removed from the from the previous mash, and so it had this sour taste, and that is what gives you sour mash. Um, I mean, over the decades, things changed. I mean, you get new still designs, you got new grains, uh, new strands of corn that they were using and things like that. And so I'm not saying all this is like... Oh yes, 18 whatever happened and all of a sudden we had the perfect stage and then 18 something else happened and we got this next section done. Things were constantly evolving over the years. Um, but basically some of the families would pass down their knowledge through generations and this would pave way to the bigger names in the industry today. It, it was this kind of continual uh, progression. Now if we jump forwards to the year 1920, we come to the implementation of the Volstead Act. Do you know what the Volstead Act was? No, I do not know what Volstead is. I'm guessing it's something to do with the Prohibition because it's 1920. The Volstead Act is the thing that brought in Prohibition. So the Volstead Act came in and it made the production, sale and consumption of alcohol within the United States illegal. A time commonly referred to as... Prohibition. Prohibition. A great film about Prohibition, by the way. Bugsy Malone. You know what? I could have put, like... 20 pounds on the desk with a in an envelope and said Bugsy Malone will get mentioned during Prohibition <laughs> would I have got the 20 pounds no uh. <laughs> it's just I could have done that very prohibition Terry of you now I want to say first of all as we've said before I believe Hollywood has kind of coloured Prohibition a little bit in a certain way it wasn't like every single person was illegally creating uh, uh, spirits and beer in their backyard um, certainly wasn't like every single uh, road was full of people dodging the law with cases of whiskey in the back in the in the back of the car no one was around at that time Jordan we don't know what happened people were around in the 1920s <laughs> <laughs> undocumented history it's less than a hundred years ago no it's not it's actually a hundred years ago <laughs> Are you not aware what year we it's live in? It's a hundred years ago. I thought it was. I thought it was twenty nineteen. I made a joke, but you actively got the year wrong. I know you like prohibition. I don't know much about it except you know, obviously, bands of alcohol, speakeasies, songs, the fashion. I know quite a bit about nineteen twenties, but uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the concept of prohibition wasn't exactly a, a change overnight. It's not like nineteen twenty came around and like, hey, I think we need to stop this. There was kind of. <laughs> First of January, like, all right, we've had a New fun Year's time. <laughs> Listen, we've all had fun here, but I think it's time we stop. Um, I mean, it all began with um, the temperance movement. Don't know if you know about the temperance movement? No. Okay. So the temperance movement was formed by people who were concerned about the effects of uh, the consumption of alcohol had on others and the perpetuity to uh, and the perpetuity to be kind of unlawful and uncivil after imbibing in such drinks as tends to happen. Now, it's fair to say that uh, late 1800s early 1900s the consumption of alcohol was getting rife and it was particularly amongst the lower class people who were drinking a lot, uh, a lot to do with the problems that were at the time as well, and they were turning to drink a bit, and this tended to have a knock-on effect. You ever notice how it's problematic if lower class people drink, but if upper class people drink, it's like, oh, it's just a quirky trait of theirs. Well, we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there genuinely was a problem with the consumption of alcohol. It was getting to a phenomenal level in, in, in the 1900s. Um, 
and and so the temperance movement was formed. Unfortunately, you started to... I mean, it's like with every movement, no matter how good the kind of cause is, there's always people that will start to join it um, and they will take it too far. And there were, there were groups in the temperance movement that were... I mean, they were burning down saloons to the ground. You know, it's, it's like alcohol's evil. We need to burn the places that sell alcohol. And, I mean, people were getting hurt. Um, and also, I mean, there were, there were clashes between the protesters uh, in the streets. Were saloons still around in 1920? Yeah, saloons were still around. In the early 1900s, saloons would still be around, yes. Oh. Oh, no, you do think of saloons as like... What you're saying is you think of saloons as being like cowboy times. Yeah. When did the cowboy times end? I know, they went on for so much longer than I always think they did. Weirdest thing when you were playing Red Dead and I saw a car and I was like, what? <laughs> the cowboy times lasted a long time, okay? The, the period of the, the cowboys and the Wild West is, is not just like 10 years. Yeah, it's about 12. <laughs> Give or take. And so the temperance movement, I mean, they, they were on the right track, but they, the message got kind of skewed a little bit, let's put it this way. Uh, interestingly, I was wrong about the temperance movement, the phrase which we still use today, teetotal. Oh, I remember you mentioning that and I was like, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, teetotal. I thought we'd mentioned it before. Um, back in the, like the, the early 1900s when there were these like gentlemen clubs and things like that gentlemen not, not clubs, strip clubs. <laughs> like clubs for the for the gentlemen in the upper class where they'd retire and have their brandy and cigars or whatever yeah like Dorian Gray um, yeah so basically what they'd have is they'd have these ledgers in the clubs and um, certain members who were in fact uh, following the temperance movement they would uh, put it down as uh, teetotal abbreviating temperance to tea so you'd have temperance total effectively and this kept track of who and who was not actually uh, drinking in the, in the clubs oh like does Designated driver. Well, not really. Well, some places, well, kind of. if you're a designated driver, like you the, get like the free water. Netflix, <laughs> the next Netflix uh, series, Designated Driver. <laughs> <laughs> Featuring Jake Gyllenhaal and Joel McHale. And Ryan Reynolds. And Ryan Reynolds. Guest starring Hugh Jackman. Begrudgingly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the temperance movement also clashed with distillers themselves, who, uh, a lot of them, it's worth mentioning, distillers actually recognised the need for this respect for alcohol to be increased. The problem was the temperance movement started to use uh, particularly religious kind of messages behind it, trying to say that the Bible was uh, against drinking and, and the consumption uh, of alcohol. And uh, a couple of distillers who were very famously religious as well, um, were very angry at this kind of misuse of the Bible to push their views because actually apparently the Bible does say that you have the right to consume uh, fermented drinks in moderation. Things were being skewed to the point of views and I mean now we call it fake news let's face it. But... Uh, so yeah I mean this is building up to the situation where prohibition came into effect. The government felt that the problem had to be solved. It was heavy-handed approach. It famously did not work. I mean you had the speakeasies, you had the rum runners, you had illicit distilling, you had all manner of criminal activities taking place. I mean, if anything, the criminals got richer, um, the, 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 the general public, they suffered for it. Uh, it was just a hard time to enforce, and in the, it ultimately it proved to be ineffective. Prohibition ended in 1933 after 13 years, so it was... That is not that long. It's not that long, but still, th 13 years where alcohol is illegal is long enough to have a knock-on effect on the genuine distillery, uh, the uh, the actual industry of distilling, if you imagine. Yeah. I don't quite see the drama, though I suppose it was a different... I feel like if someone was just like, yeah... I mean, people are literally drinking so much anymore. they were dying of it. Yeah, just be... No, but I mean, if someone was like, you can't have alcohol, go, oh, well, guess I won't then, like... <laughs> 
It doesn't... You don't need it to live. Now, the problem is, like I say, these 13 years, they hit the industry very hard. Uh, many reopened, but there are others who just simply couldn't. They couldn't afford to. It was no longer viable. Uh, you had all sorts of merges happening over these 13 years, um, starting to get to the point where you see it today. And that's why a lot of distilleries in America, you'll see multiple... Um, kind of uh, names and products being distilled at the same distillery. So as I said, Buffalo Trace is a big one. They do Blanton's, they do the Sazerac stuff, they do Buffalo Trace themselves, they do all sorts. Jim Beam, Brown Foreman, they were a conglomeration of different uh, basically families and recipes of, of, of whiskies that they were creating. And they were now being kind of um, protected and preserved, but people were falling by the wayside as well. And it's just approaching like an endangered species list, but for whiskey. It kind of, actually, it's... I tell you what, if you read it, it's like it actually does read like an endangered species list. Lions, Jim Bean. <laughs> um, it does, like, the history during Prohibition of who folded and who kept going. It does kind of read like that. We didn't have Prohibition, did we? Certainly not in the 1920s. However, Scotland's town of Wick, where the old Pulte distillery is, uh, was home to a very, very large fishing fleet. So large, in fact, that you could reportedly actually walk across the bay just by stepping across all the ships. Like Whoa. walking from ship hull to hull. Yeah, you ship deck to deck rather, not hull to hull. You'd be a mermaid then. The um, hull is the bottom part. Yeah, I got I, I said hull instead of deck and I meant deck. But yeah, it was a huge, huge fishing community. I don't think that would fly now if they put Prohibition in. Everyone would be like, lol no. I can't see Prohibition being put in place because governments like the tax they get from alcohol too much. Well, that too, but I mean... I mean, the Scotch whiskey industry alone brings in 4.3... Three billion in revenue a year. Yeah, like I say, it lasted for thirteen years, and it had a knock-on effect on the industry. However, it's also worth noting: family uh, and distillery company known as Brown Foreman, uh, they were able to distill before, during, and after Prohibition, because they were able to get what is called a medical license, and they produced their whiskey um, for medicinal reasons. Uh, of course. I mean, they weren't the only distiller to achieve this license, but there actually weren't that many that managed to get it. So it was one of those things, and I, I do like the, the fact that, you know, whiskey's medicine, that's great. Right? Hey, oh, yeah. if I've learned anything about medical history, is that anything could be medicine. <laughs> but yeah, I, th I think during Prohibition, there was a lot of uh, medicinal whiskey being prescribed to people. See, after Prohibition ended, the industry also saw uh, the addition of new regulations to try and ensure the high quality uh, could be assured after the frankly uh, dangerous kind of spirit that was being sold by the criminals. I mean, they were getting all sorts and just mixing it with some colour to make it passable and stuff. And was this it was the thing people. you said last time with Pappy Van Winkle? Was like Rectifiers, you... you're remembering. Which is kind of the same <sighs> thing. But yes, you are kind of correct, actually, there. Rectifiers. Uh, Papi Lomingo calls on about the rectifiers and how their spirit was dangerous. And criminals would often do that. They would buy cheap spirit and they would maybe mix it with some actual whiskey or mix it with all kinds of stuff to make it look like it's right. And yeah, people were dying from this stuff. It I'll was take that as a win. Not the deaths, but I mean the fact that I was close. Um, it's also worth noting that at the end of Prohibition, you had Roosevelt's, uh, Roosevelt's New Deal. Now, uh, this create was there to create uh, jobs and support to industries, and particularly, this is where the brand new casks come in for American oak. You can only use brand new American oak when you mature American bourbon and, and, and um, rye. And this is part of the New Deal. It created and protected jobs in the industry that was very sorely needed. Uh, and that kind of wraps up the... I mean, like I say, there's so much rules and, and history to bourbon. You can't... It's the same with everything. You can't get through it in an episode. You couldn't do it justice. But this roughly takes you through the steps to 
kind of getting to the stage where we are. Like I said last time, there was there was the charring of the casks that was discovered arguably by accident. You've got the maturing by accident. Got a Braxis driving the roads by accident. You've got the cask goblins. The cask goblins. They are actually intrinsical to making whiskey work. They are, but I suppose it's like anything. You need population control in the pests, otherwise they'd overwhelm the warehouses. So with that, I think we'll move on to the tasting section. I've chosen my all-time favourite bourbon. <gasps> Is it the lie. horse one? It's the horse, the bottle that you can literally see from here. I can see do. I can see that in Ardberg. And I took a, I took a stand. Okay. Because that one looks old timely. Which one of these is bourbon? Not the one from Scotland. Not the one from Scotland. So that discount, this, that discounts Ardberg. Yeah, but I'm just saying I can see Critical two bottles. Critical thinking skills that you were on about me yesterday. I'll critically throw this microphone at you. So yeah, Blanton's. I do like the bottle. It does the look like... The bottle looks good. You see these bottles timely. in so many like films and things as props in the background and yeah, stuff. Yeah, doesn't Lucifer have that? Uh, yep, yeah. Lucifer has one yeah. in his bar, definitely, as well as the Sazerac bottle I've noticed before. John Wick drinks Blanton's as well. Ooh. Not this bottle. He drinks like the fancy, fancy Blanton's. It, it's just so cool looking. It, it is, is proper a cool like bottle. old timely. And the font's all nice and cool. The only things I care about are the bottles, to be honest. So a little bit of history about Blanton's. It's distilled at the Buffalo Trace Distillery, and it's actually owned by the Sazerac Company. It was created by a, a gentleman that was the master distiller called Elmer T. Lee, Whoa. which sounds like a brilliant American name. Elmer T. Lee? Elmer T. Lee. Like, T must have stood for something. Like, it's an initial. Tiberius? Tiberius, Thomas. Transformer? Transformer. It could, it could be anything. Telephone. And he was he was a very well-respected man. He, he was in the industry pretty much all of his career. When it came up for him nearing his retirement, he kind of reflected back on his long career and remembered when he worked under a gentleman called Colonel Blanton. Oh my gosh, all these names are so fun. Um, and, I mean, Colonel Blanton, in the end, he became the president of the distillery and when he was entertaining important people and dignitaries when they were going around the distillery, he would hand-pick the best barrels from the centre of uh, of the rick where you store barrels. The rick? Yeah, ricks are basically like the, the structure that you store barrels on. I've shown you pictures of them before where you have rows and rows and rows of barrels. Yes, of course. And so basically he'd, he'd kind of pick them from the centre where you got the best barrels because I was saying last time you had that less temperature fluctuation going on. Yep, I remember that. Uh, and he would always pick them from Warehouse H, which he'd had built. Now, Warehouse H... Uh, it, that it's sounds particular... so shady. Like, oh, Warehouse H. Like, no one's around, right? Flip flip this barrel and... <laughs> and like, lowering the down... Warehouse H, he had built. And at the time he built it, he had it built out of metal. Because it was quicker to build. Didn't I ask a question about... I think you did, something? yeah. Because I was like, metal in high heat wouldn't be good. Yeah. Um, however, it turns out it had a very specific kind of effect on casks that were matured in warehouse heat. And it turned out to work very well. Because of this this temperature fluctuation you had going on in the warehouse, uh, it was you know, day by day it, it fluctuated. Um, and it was great. It really did help the, the maturation process and create these unique flavours. And he was convinced that warehouse heat was... The warehouse to, if you're going to pick a whiskey from, that was the warehouse you picked it from. And so when he was entertaining, he'd always go in and he'd hand select a barrel um, and he'd have it He'd have it bottled from the single barrel. Like I say, uh, Elmer T. Lee, before he retired, he actually created this, this whiskey. It was back in 1984, I want to say, 1980s anyway, when he retired. This was kind of his, his big kind of final project. And it was the first single barrel bourbon to be marketed. And to this day, it is always single barrel it's always i mean even if you look on that bottle now you'll see the warehouse uses warehouse h it'll say on there because they will only ever choose barrels from warehouse h h for blanton's uh, they're always numbered with information not only about the cask but 
at uh, the rig upon which it was uh, maturing, the date the barrel was emptied, um, the bottle number obviously as well, the cask number, um, and uh, like even the filtration and bottling is all done by hand when it comes to Blanton's. It's that level of quality that they're putting into it. There's, it's just maintaining this hands-on approach. And I think it really does show with the bourbon. There's just something about Blanton's I absolutely love. It's great. The, the quality's there, you can taste it, the commitment's there. Uh, I mean, they do other versions. This is just this, this standard Blanton's original. They do Blanton's Gold. They do... Um, which, actually, Blanton's Gold always makes me laugh because it's not actually available in America. Wait, what? Yeah, they make a bourbon you can't even buy in America. That checks out, honestly. Like, I'm not even surprised. <laughs> it's for export only. And so um, it just kind of, that one always makes me laugh. I mean, to be fair, Scotland does it as well. They make scotch that you can only buy in, like, America or, or in the Asian markets and things like that. It's That's not, really weird. It, it does seem weird. Like, you, you can't even buy it there so i think we'll get on to the tasting section so just to go over the rules real quick what makes bourbon bourbon again is it the percentages 51 percent corn has to go into it that's it i couldn't remember what it was there were some other rules as well but that's the big one yeah that's um, all i needed to know i couldn't remember what made them different I also don't bourbons tend speech. to be lovely dark kind of reddish colors as well because it's that brand new oak it really draws in the the, the color into the flavors color into the spirit rather so we'd like to give that notes no, no the colors into the flavors the colors into the flavors yeah I accidentally did a flip instead of a spin. Ooh, sherry. <laughs> now you know it's not sherry. Seriously, didn't. How was I because they have to use brand new American oak. Oh, Cast. I can't keep track of... just talking about that. I can't keep track of all this information. It doesn't smell terrible, though. It doesn't smell terrible. You heard it here, folks. No, I mean, with, with bourbons, I, I always find there is, there's there's that corn sweetness you get coming through. That, uh, Blanton's does have a little bit of a spice come through as well. It's got that balance to it. It's um, often... Often you get kind of like citrusy fruits coming through as well. And, and certainly kind of a vanilla side, I find, as well. I really like it, um, particularly in summer. I, I mean, we're in July, so we should, be, should really be having summer whiskey now. Although, having said that, I did have some very peaty whiskey yesterday. And, like, on the nose, although it's bottled, it's bottled at 46.5% ABV, which is apparently 93 proof using the proof system. But it, even at 46.5, it doesn't doesn't really hurt the nose. It is quite a rounded whiskey, and, and the spirit's lovely. I love the dark colour, the aromas you get. Now, flavour-wise, you're getting this nice kind of rounded flavour. Certainly that vanilla and, and um, a bit of a citrusiness comes through, I always find. Um, and the spice is definitely there on the finish. It, it goes down lovely and warming. See, 46.5, you do feel it a bit on the finish. Adding water to it, up to you. I quite like my bourbons to be quite strong. Um, like, as I was saying before, particularly with things like your bottled and bond bourbons, I, I love them. Um, and it's the variety. It, it's completely different to Scotch. It's going to be. It's completely different to Irish. It's going to be. And this is what I'm trying to say. Just, just because it's different doesn't mean it's inferior. They're not trying to create a Scotch. They're creating a bourbon. And I think too many people do automatically dismiss bourbons and rye whiskies and corn whiskies because it doesn't have a 12-year-old age statement on it, because it hasn't been used in Scotland and created in Scotland. And it's this variety, again, that I love about whiskey and find it fascinating. And I think that just about rounds up the episode. Any questions? No. No. Pop quiz time. 41% corn. 51% corn for bourbon. Oh, God has damn to be it. over 50% corn. It was so if close. If you learn one thing other than Tamdui, I hope it's that bourbon has to be 51% corn by the end of it this. It won't. I can never remember the bourbon rules. I can never remember the other rules either. They go in casks. That's what I've learned. Can we not accept that? Who? Pappy Van Winkle. That was the question I was going Yeah, I was going to say, like, who gave uh, testif testimony over the rectifiers? And I thought maybe you'd get Van Winkle. Okay, if who you hadn't said burn? that question, I wouldn't know. But I guess you'd give me Pappy Van Winkle because it's the only name I will ever remember. 
Who, which master distiller created Blanton's? It was that awesome American name we went through. It's oh, not on the bottom. something Lee. Yes, Elma T. Lee. Elma T. Lee. And why is it called Blanton? Because it's Blantabrilous. Because it was named after Colonel Blanton, the other awesome That's American name right. you said. Imagine being like the person like, Hi, I'm Luke. This is Colonel Blanton's. Obviously, his name's way better than mine. Well, he, it, Colonel wasn't his first name. It was his rank. He was a colonel. It's important to me that you also know that one, actually. Sorry, this is Colonel Colonel Blanton's. <laughs> yeah, my name is Co- oh, Colonel Colonel Blanton's. Um, yeah, but if you're introducing someone who's a colonel, you usually introduce them as Colonel. That's true. He did have a first name. It was... I'll just Google it on mine. It's like Albert or something like that. Because of the name, I know that. Colonel Bland. I think it's he had the initial B as well. So William like... H. Blanchard. Oh no, that's a different guy. Go on to Albert. I said it was Albert. No, you didn't. I did. I said it's Albert or something you like said, that. And said... he has the initial B for the middle name. No, sorry, don't help me the rules. What's his name? Albert Blanton. Mm-hmm. And the initial for the middle name? Oh, there's someone George T. Stagg. Um... George T. Stagg, another big name in the industry. What What is the letter you think? B. Yeah, you're reading it right now. No, honestly, that's what I said. I said I'm pretty sure his name was Albert B. Blanton, Colonel Albert B. Blanton. Yeah, it was, but I wasn't hundred percent sure. Why is it called sour mash? Because it's sour. And why is it sour? Fermenting process. Why do you use it? Because it tastes nice. To kill the bacteria. That's what fermenting is. It's all bacteria. No, but there's also bacteria that will spoil it. Do you have to burp the barrels like you do with fermentation? Yes, they 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 put they they. They swaddle the barrels and they just no, give them a nice pat. You, that's what that's what the warehouse people do is they swaddle the barrels and they just give them a nice pat and go, "Who's a good barrel? Yes, you and are." And then a goblin comes out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, that was a big one. No, when you're Rock fermenting my things, on the top. When you're fermenting things, obviously gas is built and you have to burp them so the thing doesn't explode. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to release the gases during fermentation. That's like day one for me. Please, that's, that's like kindergarten fermentation. <laughs> and yet you made a dumb joke about it. Oh, so only you can make dumb jokes? Yeah, I'm expected to be the dumb one. <laughs> well, this has been Cascades. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe on whichever podcasting platform you use. It really does help us and more importantly may lead others to listen to and discover the show. You can also visit our website or send us an email if you have any questions. The links are within the description below. And as always, we'll leave you with one editor goof. Goodbye. See ya. Yeah, the East Coast. Yeah. The right of America. How's that hard to understand? Because on a map, doesn't... Wait. No, go with this. Go on, tell me. <laughs> Maps quite specifically f- keep the direction going the same. No map says, hey, this quadrant's just like an opposite day. Don't worry. I don't wish to discuss it anymore. Please edit this bit out. No, I think it's <laughs> <just> staying. <laughs>